Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we learned about our latest police-involved shooting in America, discussed love and longing in Oakland, and were baffled by the latest hedge fund acquisitions, your dad's favorite music. All this plus the latest from Eureka Casnow, Size Matters, and the Biden Files. It's the Lumpen Week in Review for April 16th, 2021. Mario Smith spoke with WBEZ's education reporter, Sarah Karp, about the continuing standoff between the Chicago Teachers Union and CPS. Why is there so little trust between the union and the mayor? And why is the mayor backing off her campaign promise to instill an elected school board? Find out on News from the Service Entrance with Mario Smith every Thursday at 2 p.m. I want to talk about uh, the most recent uh, thing in the in the uh, education uh, situation here in our town, and that's the Chicago Teachers Union versus the school board about high school kids getting back into school. Um, it appears that the teachers union and the school board, oh, surprise, are at an impasse when it comes to how they're going to do this. What's the latest that that you can uh, impart on this conversation about when or when not, if you will, teachers will be back in school with high school? So today, the teachers and other staff that are CTU members are staging a work action in which they're refusing to report to buildings. So they had been required to report starting on um, starting on Monday to prepare for students who are supposed to come back next Monday, April 19th. And so they came to work on Monday. They came to work on Tuesday, but today they're not at work um, to protest the lack of an agreement. However, there seems to be a lot of progress, and this is according to both the union and the school district, and there could be a deal as, as early as today, and that would end the work action, and it would create a situation so that school could reopen for high school students come Monday, as the school district wants. We had Jesse Sharkey on a few weeks ago, and I got the impression from him um, that when it came to the high school part, he really wanted to make sure that they got this right, as opposed to how it, how it was really bitter in the negotiations about getting the younger kids in. Did they accomplish that, you think? I think that it's been a less acrimonious process this time. One reason is that some of the really big issues were decided last time. So, you know, things like safety protocol, there was a big fight over whether they could be enforceable. The union won that fight. There was also a big fight about how many teachers and other staff could work from home. And one reason why that's been a less um, dramatic fight this time is that a lot of teachers are vaccinated, so they're not as worried about going into schools and working. So that's just much less of an issue. So I think, I definitely think that they have been able to sort of get along better. I know that at the start of these negotiations, they tried to sort of like wipe the slate clean and sort of, you know, say we're going to try and do this, do this right. Though, I, I mean, I, of course, this is not perfect. And it's really the test is really going to be probably the next 24 hours, because as you get to the real fine details, it, it comes down to how far the union's willing to go and how far the school district's willing to go. And if they start digging in, then you can have some problems. Should they have just scratched this for the high school kids this year? And, 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 and because I mean, I don't, it's, it's 
April. May is a few weeks away. Graduation is generally in June. Um, the numbers show that this hasn't went very well in terms of high school kids and their grades. Uh, should they have just said, you know, let's just do this better in September? Well, you know, I do think that if school does not start, if they do not open in-person learning come Monday, it, it start. It really, really does become a situation where you're like, okay, it's only X number of days left in the whole school year. What's even the point of this? I, I think you, you start seeing that, you know, I, I think the school district and even the union, part of their reasoning is that if they can get it right now, that can be sort of a prototype for the fall. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can draw a few kids in and sort of push them over the finish line for this last quarter of the school year. Um, you know, whether it's worth it or not, I think I think there's a lot of questions. That will be something that will be answered maybe in a couple years. I mean, the school district is spending a lot of money to start in-person learning right now. A lot of the things that they're put in place are not clear that they'll need to be in place in perpetuity. And so, you know, you do start to think like, okay, we're going to spend all this money, like buying webcams, right? So that, so that you can do, because there's still a lot of kids that will be at home. So teachers are going to have to teach the kids in class and at home at the same time. So they need webcams. But if next year, everybody's in person, then you got a whole lot of webcams hanging around and, you know, to what use? Yeah. Um, I want to talk about trust for a second. This is a two-part question. Why is it the relationship between the Chicago Teachers Union? I don't mean to laugh. That's not right. Why is the relationship between the Chicago Teachers Union and the school board devoid of trust? Well, you know, definitely with our former mayor, Rahm Emanuel, the trust was really eroded because of some of the things that he did very, very early on in his tenure where he sort of, you know, made, thought that he could make the teachers union like public enemy number one. And then that kind of backfired on him. And that that remained very much a, a fractured relationship. With Lightfoot coming in, you know, she had an opportunity to maybe not have such a bad relationship, but I do think the 2019 strike was really, really, really bitter. Um, you know, there's, I, I think that she has a lot of hard feelings around it. I think the union has a lot of hard feelings around it. And I think also maybe they don't both feel like they're c- both coming from a good place. Like maybe maybe Lightfoot doesn't think that, that the, the teachers union, maybe Lightfoot thinks the teachers union is just about a power grab or trying to, uh, she's even said that, you know, that that they're trying to, um, unseat her, you know, they're trying to, right. So, so if, if you have that opinion that these people are going after you, and then the union also thinks that she's, you know, gone back on a lot of her promises, made things more difficult where they didn't have to be more difficult. I think that, that they both have, you know, these, these ideas of sort of where they are and that's sort of fueling the fire. So yeah. And and when again, we had Jesse Sharkey on and he all but denied that that was their intention uh, to try to become a political organization, which is, I think, the word she used um, on more than one occasion. Um, the other part of the trust thing, and I'm, 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 I'm not asking Sarah Karp, the reporter now, I'm talking to Sarah Karp, the mom, um, and a person that's lived in this city all, all, all her life. Why? Is there such a 
trust issue in these neighborhoods and, and with with uh, on the mayor. Uh, there's a little bit of a trust issue with CPS and the Chicago police. And I'm thinking about Adam Toledo, the 13 year old who was killed and how that must be playing out for other young people in regards to the police and how they function and, 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 and their relationship with the, with the neighborhoods and with the kids in them. Your mom, your mom, two boys, two outstanding dudes. Um, one of who really likes my favorite, football team, Arsenal. I'm, I'm very fond yes. of him more than the other one, although I love the other one too. <laughs> um, how how do you as a mom interpret the trust issue in, in our neighborhoods? Well, What's you know, I think there's a lot, that, that's a big question, but there's a long, very, very deep-seated issues. And, you know, I I think, you know, with the school system, it's it's not just that, that schools have closed in neighborhoods, which breeds a lot of mistrust. But it's also that, you know, for decades, our schools have not been great. They've been, a lot of our schools have been very under-resourced. So you have a lot of adults who don't have a great opinion of Chicago public schools. They know they went to schools that were inferior, that lacked things that that, should, that everybody else seemed to, to have. So I think that that, that, that that stays with people. You have people, you know, looking at high schools and even if they're, you know, 40, 50 years old, they're looking at the high school and they're still seeing the high school of 1970 or 1980 or 1990, and they have no trust in that high school. Um, and, and, you know, I, as much as I think that there have been improvements with neighborhood high schools and different high schools, I do think that like, there's still some very big issues. There's a lot of high schools that are really under-resourced. Um, in terms of like young people and trust, when when Lori Lightfoot was running for office, you know, a lot of what I heard from the youth activists is that they really didn't trust her because of her role on the police board. And so I think that sort of remains in, in play. But, you know, th there's a lot of people who there, there's a lot of people who've gotten shot by police or hurt by police police are roughed up by police in the city of Chicago. And it's not just Adam Toledo. I mean, you know, he's 13, but there's 20 year olds, there's 22 year olds, mm -hmm. there's 18 year olds, there's, there's so many, and, and people know these people, you know, I mean, I don't think, I think that breeds mistrust and it's not just being shot. It's like just the, in, the interaction. You know, I, I often think about the whole dynamic and maybe this is going too far afield, but you know how so many of the police officers come from like Mount Greenwood or come from, you know, Portage Park way on the north northwest side of the city. And they're kind of living in these isolated situations where they, you know, they're not interacting on just sort of like the everyday basis with just people in the neighborhood. And I think that, you know, that that causes both sides to not see each other is like full human beings, you know, because it's, and I, I, I think that, that, that if every time you look at a police officer, you see somebody who doesn't look anything like anybody in your community and they're not really nice to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, that, that's, that's troublesome. I mean, you know, I think of my own sons. I mean, one of my sons, when he was in eighth grade, got put in the back of a police car because some other, some guy, you know, some guy who fit his same description 
ro- supposedly robbed an apartment building. And if that's your interaction with police at age, you know, 13, 14, how does that recover? You know, how do you then see that, you know, you're both looking at each other and giving each other a fair shot? I don't, I don't know how that recovers. <laughs> from I-94 spoke with Brontes Purnell, the author of 100 Boyfriends, a semi-fictional memoir of a life on the margins. Purnell discusses his life in Oakland, the soul-crushing nature of dead-end jobs, and how being on the cover of Rolling Stone isn't all it's cracked up to be. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Mickey's father was all about big entrances. You could feel the charisma of him six feet before he arrived. He said a quick hi to his parents, who didn't even look up from the screen to acknowledge their son. Mickey followed his dad to the bedroom they shared in the back of the house. Mickey loved his dad. It was mostly his smell, a mix of alcohol, pork cracklings, and cheap cologne. He would sit in his dad's lap when he would play dominoes with the men at the pool hall in town and lean his head against his dad's chest just so he could smell him. It was a very peaceful smell. Mickey sat on the bed and watched his dad's nighttime pre-party ritual, which happened most nights of the week. He would dash out of the shower, toss on cologne and deodorant and hair grease. After this, he would always proceed to spray a grotesque amount of starch on his Levi's 501s and iron them till they were stiff as a board. His father sometimes called him Mouse, because his name was Mickey. Yeah, Mouse, I'ma find you a pretty stepmama tonight. Look at the crease in these pants, you could cut yourself on them. None of these stepmothers ever materialized, but either way, Mickey loved watching his father's nightly beauty rituals. He was less like a dad and more like an older brother. It worked. His father threw on a pair of pristinely white Converse and a green Izod polo, grabbed the keys to his 76 Volkswagen Beetle and hit the door. See you when I get home, Mouse. Stay up and wait for me, okay? Okay, Papa, said Mickey. His father picked him up off the bed and hugged him tight and kissed him on the forehead. He sat him down and was off. Mickey always wanted to tell his dad about Cortez, but always kept the matter close to himself. For one, he didn't want his father bear thinking he was a punk, and two, he knew that any kid who snitched on another kid was a dead kid. If he got Cortez in trouble, we would have to fight Cortez and all his scary-ass cousins for the rest of his life. It was all very lose-lose. Mickey's grandparents had gone to sleep and he pulled out two VHS tapes from a pile by the TV. One was a bootleg copy of an hour of BET videos, and the other was also a bootleg copy of his favorite movie, Flashdance. 
He put on the BET tape and rebound it to his favorite spot, the Janet Jackson Pleasure Principle video. What wasn't to love about Janet Jackson? She had it all. She had bangs, she drank water out of a bottle, this baffled Mickey, and she was a dancer who lived in a warehouse. Was this a thing? He cross-referenced it with Alex, the protagonist stripper performance artist in Flashdance, who also more than likely drank water out of a bottle, but most definitely was a dancer who lived in a warehouse. All the evidence was clear. All the coolest people were dancers who lived in warehouses. He was on the fence about the bottled water part. As always, Mickey alternated the tapes and practiced the routines until 2.30 a.m. when his dad got home, and Mickey would curl up beside him and hear all about the gossip at the club. The next morning, Mickey missed the school bus. He and his dad were up talking too late. His father called in sick to work and took Mickey to breakfast and dropped him off at school 10 minutes after the morning tardy bell had rung. He was late with a stomach full of Hardy's biscuits and strawberry jam. He felt satiated. He stepped into Miss Dickerson's class and spied the new boy. He and Mickey were wearing the same sleeveless gray Thundercats t-shirt with a full print of Lion O, the team leader, on the front and the red and black Thundercats emblem on the back. In Mickey's head, immediate friendship seemed like the next step. My mom goes to Dollar General too, exclaimed Ed, Mickey's new immediate best friend. He had this feeling in his stomach now, the same as when Cortez would bother him, only much more violent, yet sweet too, like three packets of pop rocks fizzing in his stomach all at once. Ed was from Texas, Mexico before that. He was dark but not like Mickey. He was more medium brown like a cinnamon color as opposed to Mickey's indigo. He had an accent that Mickey had only ever heard on TV before. He had a rat tail and his bangs almost covered his eyes. Ed's father and mother both went to Athens State University, the college in the next town over. They were finishing agricultural degrees. Ed had no brothers or sisters. Both boys agreed that they wished they had Chitara t-shirts, the female psychic feline warrior from Thundercats. They also both agreed that they should share crayons all day. After school, Mickey sat sweating on the bus. Ed was right next to him. Ed's parents had moved into the renovated old post office in the center of town. This was along Mickey's route. Mickey had focused on Ed so entirely that he hadn't noticed that Gortez wasn't riding the bus that day. The windows were all down on the bus and Mickey could waft Ed's smell, dial soap and sweat. It had a sweet smell to it, different from his dad's, but still, a peaceful smell. I never talked to a black person, said Ed, which he punctuated by putting his arm around Mickey's shoulder. Ed smiled big and removed his arm, and they both sat close, elbow touching elbow, side by side. They both watched the cotton in full bloom as the bus raced through the fields. The bus let Ed off, and Mickey waved goodbye to him, and then it hit. Cortez was nowhere to bother him. He breathed a sigh of release and sank back into his seat. He almost wished Cortez could have been there to see his new friend Ed. He even fantasized about him and Ed beating Cortez up. Mickey went straight to the room he shared with his dad. He wrote Ed's name on the wall in pencil and erased it over and over again. The next day at school, Ed didn't show up, and neither did Cortez. Both boys missed the next day and the one after that. Miss Dickerson explained to Mickey that Ed's parents had found a more suitable housing near campus, and he would start attending the elementary school in the town in the next county over. He then heard from his grandmother that Cortez's uncle and cousin had been arrested and he was in New Orleans with his mom again. It was the end of the school year so none of it really mattered. There was a new feeling in Mickey's stomach now. It felt like the bottom was falling out of it. Later that day on the school bus, with neither predator to probe him nor friend by his side, Mickey let out a big sigh as the bus stopped to drop the other kids off. He was bored. You just heard a selection from the brand new book, 100 Boyfriends. Brontez Purnell is the author. It is out now on FSG, and he joins us from the Bay Area. We heard a selection, uh, actually a little bit later in the book, uh, a story about a child that is being bullied at school. 
Uh, but then both his bully and the friend he makes at school suddenly and mysteriously disappear. Um, and they disappear for, unfortunately, very, um, I don't want to say banal reasons, but very understandable reasons these days uh, in people that are, are struggling with uh, poverty and other issues that come with that. Um, that was a very affecting passage for me, and I, I wondered if you could speak to it a little bit, because uh, I thought you eloquently summed up... Um, you know, a child who is feeling kind of out of place at school, but is also being bullied for how he looks, for his sexuality, or possibly what his sexuality might be, but also how he finds uh, love and hope in his father, uh, who he uh, stays up too late with, uh, hearing about his nights out at the club, and, and then staggers in after the tardy bell after eating Hardee's. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because that was one of the, uh, the stories really that for me stuck out. It was one of the standout ones in the book. Well, basically, um, the culture of childhood has really changed. And um, Ed's name written in pencil is very particularly about like kind of a rural 80s childhood where, you know, you know, sometimes I think back to the 80s and something about the 80s feels more like the 60s than anything close to now, because I don't know, it's just um, it was still just still very like felt like a raw time or that last era before, I don't know, language became available to our families and everything. And I don't know, people talk so much about, I don't know, trauma and event and just um, like trauma and event and just like the, I don't know, even talking to my nephew, my nephew is 12 years old, the language he uses around how his parents should or should not talk to him, we would have never, we didn't have anything like that. And so I remember too, just being of an age where if you were getting fucked with at school, you didn't dare come home and tell your parents because your parents would be like, why didn't you beat that kid's ass? Or, you know, you were very much it was you were very much still kind of in charge of your destiny or maybe even we took on the responsibility of adults way too early so i think it was um nice to kind of write about or encapsulating kind of like that era or like kind of that last era where childhood felt so scary and wide open you know i look at also my nephew my nephew's never been more than 20 minutes outside of adult supervision in his life Whereas I feel like we were, I mean, I was probably a really in that really strong tradition of latchkey kids where like we would just roam the neighborhood for hours, you know, a nation of kids. Just I remember walking the streets and the oldest amongst us being 12 and this just happening for hours, you know. And so the things in our childhood, um, I think it's it's very particular when you're kind of I don't know, when you're raised, when you have this kind of feral childhood, and I wanted to talk about that kind of last strong era of, like, when it felt more socially acceptable to have that type of childhood or when it sat a lot more unquestioned than it does now. Yeah, I was a teenager in the 80s. I think we were, like, and coming up at that time, it was, like, the last generation of kids that were unsupervised. And I had a, Brontes, I had a very similar situation as you. And then, like, when I got into high school, I got into punk rock. And, you know, I was going to shows in Detroit. My parents didn't know where we were. And we come home in the middle of the night. And, like, you know, and, you know, I have friends with kids now. And it's, like, they don't even let them in the yard by themselves, you know. And, and I think you when you – there's a – you have a, a certain kind of toughness um, you know, I got bullied when I was young and I got beat up and like certainly didn't enjoy it. But then like 
Now, I have a lot of empathy for people that are bullied, and I can see it from the, you know, the other side. And uh, I think that, that, that you know, that a lot is lost in, like, learning stuff on your own and not having everything, you know, spoon-fed to you. Yeah, I was I, that, that I think was one of the reasons, and I think, Brontes, you hit it on the, the nail on the head for me, because I, I felt that that really summoned up kind of the era when you were riding around on your green machine or your BMX or whatever, and you'd, you know, you'd go to the dollar store to get some candy or buy a comic book. And it was a time when you still had freedom, but you didn't have the freedom of adulthood in a weird way because when you're an adult freedom you, but not safety you know, right like, well when you're an adult you know every every kid you know oh i can't wait to grow up and the realization is that yeah you have certain freedoms as an adult but you also have a lot more responsibilities and the things that you as a child kind of idealized are not actually the things that you get as an adult um and i think that goes back to like the whole main arc of your book which struck me very much again you know we talked about this in the beginning as a wanting for connection, vulnerability, but also, you know, this idea that um, you need to find partners in the world to, in a sense, take yourself out of your daily routine. So much of our daily routine is dehumanizing. And I think you talk about that very eloquently when you're working at a nonprofit. Um, I also work at <laughs> a nonprofit, and I, I felt there were some certain similarities between that nonprofit and the one I work at. Uh, I thought that a lot of that and behavior that I think many people um, specifically in the religious world can, would consider marginal is actually a desire to rebel against these roles that were put in that feel very useless and feel very frustrating and are only there to take up space and waste time. Whereas what life really is about is trying to find other people to share that life with. That. I agree with you 100%. Well said, homie. Like, word, word, <laughs> as they say. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Whoa, traffic's backed up all the way down Morgan, and I see why. Uh, looks like your buddy is at it again. Call him my buddy. Kyle, what are you doing? Jess, you're just in time. Let's do a new episode about this. About you washing cars? Well, this is the Seisman Sudski Festival, a semi-annual Bridgeport quasi-celebrity car wash and laundry. I do it every... Hold, uh, hold up. Car wash and laundry? Yes, exactly. People bring their dirty clothes to me. I soap them up and I wash their car with them. I got all the neighborhood heroes involved. Uh, over there is a guy who played uh, music on John Daly's show once. How do you do? Go away. And of course, we got Steve from Bernice's. Hi, Jess. Oh, hey, Steve. Oh, well, this seems weirdly pragmatic for you, Kyle. Yes, I know. And just for a few bucks... All Bridgeporters can come to the GoPro Alley for a car and laundry wash. It's like the only time I ever clean anything. Impressive crowd you got here. Man, I've been doing this for years. Where does the other end of that hose go? Oh, I just ran it through the mail slot up to Eric's place. <laughs> he never notices, but it's on the DL, so. Actually, here, hold the hold the hose for a minute. I gotta do this. Oh, oh my God. For the listeners, I should explain. Please don't. Kyle, are you wearing a bikini? Are you wearing my bikini? Hey, I found it on the floor fair and square. Whose floor? Jamie's. 
I live there, too. That's also my floor. Yeah, but you rent. You don't own it. So, like, you know, whatever, right? Not a thing. I definitely don't want that back. And now what my audience has been waiting for. Here comes the That's more technically impressive than I would have thought possible. I have to say, everyone's mesmerized by the... Is that my blouse? I wonder... Are you washing that car with my clothes? Hey, don't blame me. Jamie said he didn't want the car wash. He just wanted the laundry dead. Oh, here comes the meltdown. Jamie, I answer the phone. Jamie, I cannot believe you let Kyle wash the car with my clothes. They ain't closed the laundry. Gotta go. This week on The Biden Files, Biden's low profile befuddles Republicans, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is paused, a union drive at Amazon fails, Michigan is urged to close down, Trump attacks McConnell, and a withering report says the Capitol Police were woefully unprepared. These are The Biden Files. Day 80, April 9th. President Biden announced six executive actions geared toward preventing all forms of gun violence, including mass shootings, domestic violence, and suicide. Biden said the idea that we have so many people dying every single day from violence in America is a blemish on our character. The Department of Justice also issued a series of rules aimed at restricting the proliferation of so-called ghost guns and encouraged states to adopt red flag laws. Biden also created a bipartisan commission to study adding seats to the Supreme Court. Biden asked for recommendations as to how to reform the court system because it's getting out of whack. Biden has previously said he's not a fan of adding additional seats to the Supreme Court in order to alter its ideological balance. Justice Stephen Breyer also warned against expansion, saying the court's authority depends on a trust that the court is guided by legal principle, not politics. The court has not been expanded in 150 years. Its nine members are supposed to represent the nine jurisdictions. The United States, however, has expanded those jurisdictions and now has 13. A major unionization drive in an Amazon warehouse in Alabama seems to have failed, with votes going nearly two to one against that union. Votes are still being counted, but workers so far have voted 101,000 to 463 against forming a union at the warehouse. The vote is seen as a critical test of labor organizing. Amazon spent millions to defeat that effort. Investigators from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office seized financial records from the former daughter-in-law of the Trump Organization's chief financial officer. Jennifer Weisselberg turned over all records she possessed of her ex-husband's bank accounts and credit cards, plus his statements of net worth and tax filings. Florida Representative Matt Gaetz privately asked the White House for a blanket preemptive pardon for himself and some unidentified congressional allies for any crimes they may have committed. That request was pushed back, but it came as Gates was under investigation for violating sex trafficking laws. Trump said Gates, quote, has never asked me for a pardon. Justice Department lawyers still cannot find the parents of 445 children separated from their families at the border by the Trump administration. Only 61 migrant children have located their parents since Biden took office. Day 1, April 10th. Trump devoted part of his speech to Republican donors on Saturday night to insulting the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. According to multiple reports at the $400,000 a ticket closed press event, Trump called the Kentucky senator a dumb son of a bitch. 
quote, I hired his wife. Did he ever say thank you? Trump also said Mike Pence should have had the courage to object to the certification of the Electoral College results at the Capitol. Trump incorrectly claims his defeat was the result of fraud. Meanwhile, the Associated Press reported that a Pentagon timeline of events on the 6th of January showed that Pence demanded military leaders clear the capital of rioters sent by Trump. Trump, however, refused to allow that. At the same dinner, Trump also mocked Dr. Anthony Fauci, claiming, quote, have you ever seen somebody who is so full of crap? He then said the vaccines for COVID-19 should be renamed Trump scenes in his honor. Mike Lindell of MyPillow says he had hired private investigators to find out why he has fallen out of favor with Fox News. Lindell accused Fox News of a conspiracy against him to keep hidden the, quote, absolute proof he insists that he has that Trump's defeat by President Biden was rigged. Quote, you know, I'm going to have those answers soon because I've hired private investigators and I've spent a lot of money on them to investigate everything. The bots and the trolls, who's behind them? Why isn't Fox on there talking about Dominion and Smartmatic and the election fraud? Worth noting is that both Dominion and Smartmatic have sued Fox for over a billion dollars apiece for perpetuating false election claims. The Justice Department has refused to disclose documents related to the Trump administration's zero-tolerance policy that separated thousands of families at the border. Those documents requested by the lawyers representing the separated families include emails between officials and minutes of high-level meetings during the planning of that policy. Among the unreleased documents is an agenda from a May 2018 meeting that apparently included a show-of-hands vote by Trump officials on whether they should separate families. The United States has admitted just 2,050 refugees, putting the Biden administration on track to accept the fewest number of refugees this year of any modern president, including Trump. Biden did promise to raise the annual cap on refugee admissions to 125,000, up from Trump's limit of 15,000, but he has yet to make those changes official. Day 82, April 11th. The Natanz nuclear facility in Iran mysteriously lost power on Sunday amid new negotiations aimed at salvaging the nuclear freeze deal. Iranian officials immediately called it an act of sabotage. Power was cut across the facility. There were no casualties or apparent damage. The blackout came one day after Iranian officials lauded the inauguration of new centrifuges on the site. Israel is suspected of the attack by their Mossad. As is Israel's practice, they neither confirmed nor denied the assault. In the United States, a man who was previously claimed to have been part of the pro-Trump mob which stormed the Capitol was arrested and charged with plotting to blow up an Amazon data center in Virginia. That man, named as Seth Aaron Pendley of Wichita Falls, was arrested after accepting the delivery of bomb supplies that had been intercepted by the FBI. Pendley is also alleged to have made a series of posts on Signal in which he claimed he sought to kill off about 70% of the internet and kill people at Amazon. It is unclear why Pendley chose AWS as a target. Representative Matt Gates set the accused sex trafficker Joel Greenberg $900 in 2018. Greenberg then, using the same app, sent three young women money totaling $900. In the memo field of one of the Venmo payments, Gates instructed Greenberg to hit up X, using a nickname for one of the girls. Greenberg has turned state's evidence. The Health Ethics Committee announced it was opening an investigation into allegations of misconduct by Gates. The CDC said the U.S. is seeing an increase in cases of COVID linked to youth sports. Between January and March, Michigan saw 291 cases stemming from youth sports teams. The right is now engaged in a whisper campaign among conservatives to suggest that President Biden isn't actually engaged in doing his job. 
Republican Congressman John Curran suggested this week that Vice President Kamala Harris is actually in charge. Citing Biden's Twitter presence, Curran claimed, quote, the president is not doing cable news interviews. Tweets from his accounts are limited and when they come unimaginably conventional, the public comments are largely scripted. Biden has opted for fewer sit-down interviews with mainstream outlets and reporters. Invites the question, is he really in charge? Day 83, April 12th. A 20-year-old black man died after a police officer shot him during a traffic stop in a Minneapolis suburb. That man, who has been identified as Dante Wright, was killed after he was stopped for having an air freshener hanging from his rearview mirror. Hundreds of people stormed the streets in response, with violence and looting taking place as well. The chaos came as the trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd continues in Minneapolis as well. President Biden has called for an investigation into Wright's killing. The White House put the creation of a National Police Oversight Commission on hold. Instead, the administration is moving forward with its efforts to pass a police reform bill named after George Floyd. The White House said national civil rights organizations, as well as police unions, counseled the administration that a commission was not necessary and redundant. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky told Michigan to close things down and rebuffed a request from Governor Gretchen Whitmer for the federal government to send them more vaccines. Quote, the answer is not necessarily to give vaccine. The answer is to go back to our basics, to shut things down and to flatten the curve. Governor Whitmer was the subject of a kidnapping and assassination attempt and has so far resisted another lockdown in her state. But Michigan is suffering the biggest surge of COVID in the U.S. The chief of the Anti-Defamation League criticized Fox CEO Lachlan Murdoch for statements made by Fox News host Tucker Carlson, pointedly referencing an award given to the Murdochs by the ADL. Jonathan Greenblatt called for Carlson to be fired for advocating white replacement theory, a racist trope which claims the Democratic Party favors unlimited immigration in order to boost its vote. Carlson has called his critics hysterical, hyper-aggressive liars, while claiming that Democrats plan to change the population of the country. Day 84, April 13th. Johnson & Johnson's one-shot vaccine was withdrawn after federal health agencies said that a rare blood clotting reaction had occurred in six recipients within three weeks of vaccination. The move is a blow to the United States' hopes to vaccinate rural communities and marginal Americans. That vaccine is not only easier to store and transport, it is cheaper and, as a single dose, is also much faster to roll out. Brooklyn Center Police Chief Tim Gannon said the officer who fatally shot Dante Wright had shouted, Taser! but then fired a handgun instead. Quote, the question is, was it an accident? Was it intentional? That remains to be determined by a full-blown investigation. After the officer who was named as Kim Potter fired, she has heard on video saying, holy I just shot him. Both resigned later in the day. Kim Potter had been an officer for 26 years. It is unclear yet if she will be charged. Unrest continued again last night outside Minneapolis. Michigan State Senate is preparing to hold hearings on a package of voting bills. Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer has said she will veto any bill imposing new restrictions, but Michigan's Constitution offers the GOP a rarely used option for circumventing a veto. The state's Republican chairman told activists he aimed to do just that. He would usher in new voting restrictions using a voter-driven petition process that would bypass the governor's veto pen. 
President Joe Biden announced all American troops will be withdrawn from Afghanistan by September 11th, 20 years after the terror attacks in the World Trade Center. The decision will keep more than 3,000 American troops on the ground in Afghanistan beyond a May 1st withdrawal deadline that had been announced by the former administration. In making the announcement, Biden said it was the end of America's forever war. The nation of Afghanistan, in fact, has asked the USA not to withdraw, fearing reprisals from the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Iran will begin enriching uranium to 60% purity for the first time after an attack on one of its key nuclear facilities. Iran has blamed Israel for that attack, which they said caused a blackout and damaged centrifuges. The White House has asserted that, quote, the U.S. was not involved in any manner. We have nothing to add on speculation about the cause. And Biden has nominated Robert Santos to head the U.S. Census Bureau. If confirmed by the Senate, Santos would be the first person of color to permanently lead that agency. April 14th. The police officer who allegedly mistakenly shot and killed a black man during a traffic stop in suburban Minnesota has been charged with second-degree manslaughter. Kim Potter, a 26-year veteran of the force, claims she thought she was using a taser on Dante Wright. That has been dismissed by Wright's family who questioned why he was pulled over in the first place. Unrest has continued in Minnesota all week. Chicago is bracing for trouble as well. According to a scathing new report by the agency's internal investigator, the Capitol Police had clear advance warnings about the January 6th attack than were previously known, including the potential for violence in which Congress itself was the target. However, the Capitol Police were instructed by their leaders not to use their most aggressive tactics to hold off the mob. In the report, the Inspector General Michael Bolton criticized the way the Capitol Police prepared for and responded to the mob violence. The report found that the agency's leaders failed to adequately prepare despite explicit warnings that pro-Trump extremists posed a threat to law enforcement. Bolton also found that the leaders ordered their civil disturbance unit to refrain from using its most powerful crowd control tools, and he found the police were given defective protective equipment. Day 86, April 15th. The Biden administration has placed tough new sanctions on Russia and formally blamed that country's intelligence agency for a sophisticated hacking operation that attacked government computers and American companies. The new sanctions are aimed at choking off lending to the Russian government. Biden also announced a series of additional steps, including sanctions on 32 entities and individuals for disinformation efforts during the presidential campaign and for carrying out the Russian government's interference in the 2020 presidential election. Ten Russian diplomats, most of them identified as intelligence operatives, were expelled from the Russian embassy in Washington. USA has also joined with its European partners to sanction eight people and entities associated with Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea. Meanwhile, a group of House and Senate Democrats introduced legislation to expand the Supreme Court from nine members to 13 in what would be the first change in the makeup of the court in 150 years. Progressive activists say the change is necessary to restore balance to the court after Senate Republicans blocked President Barack Obama's nominee of Merrick Garland in 2016 and rammed through a third Trump appointee days before last year's election. The size of the court is set by law, not the Constitution. It was actually changed multiple times in the early days of our nation. Hundreds of corporations and executives have signed a statement opposing any discriminatory legislation that would make it harder for people to vote. The statement, which ran in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, comes as Republicans have tried to enact new restrictive voting rules in almost every American state. The Stop AAPI Hate organization has documented at least 3,800 attacks from March 2020 to February 2021. 
More than two in five Republicans say they will avoid getting vaccinated if possible. 39% of American gun owners have no safety training. 54% of Americans approve of President Biden's performance, but just 34% of Americans think the country is moving in the right direction. These are the Biden files. Chuck Mertz chatted with Rich Whittle on the current vogue for buying old songs, specifically the financialization of music catalogs belonging to the likes of Bob Dylan and Paul Simon. Why have these seminal songs become tradable products? And what's behind the gold rush? Find out on This Is Hell every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. Rich, does hypnosis purchase discographies, then aggressively distribute the song in order to stimulate purchase of what is now, you know, hypnosis's music? And if so... Is that a good deal for bands like Blondie? I think that's the first place I want to start. Is this good a good deal for musicians? Um, well, it depends uh, which musicians you're looking at, really. Um, I mean, from Blondie's perspective, uh, in raw financial terms, you could argue it's a pretty good deal. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to... Um, uh, you know, cast any aspersions about Blondie, but I, I feel like they're probably, you know, coming towards the the twilight of their um uh, their kind of uh, artistic trajectory. Um, uh, not likely to be releasing too much uh, new music, um, and perhaps uh, you know, considering what we've all been through in the last year or so, uh, not not too keen about the idea of touring. So, um, you know, from their perspective, it's it's kind of uh, uh, one last uh, big payday. Um, the you know the downside of it from their point of view is that they no longer control these songs. Um, you know they've signed over the right to uh, uh, to decide um, how and where these songs are used uh, uh, to to hypnosis. And you know perhaps they're they're, they're perfectly happy with um, having. Miley Cyrus cover them. In, in fact, I've actually heard that there might be a, a, a Debbie Harry Miley Cyrus uh, duet uh, in the works, which would be wonderful, of course. Um, but but you know who knows what uh, hypnosis have have planned for that uh, intellectual property uh, down the line. And you write how hypnosis was founded in 2018 by former Sanctuary Records executive <clears throat> Merck. Mercuriatus and Nile Rogers from Chic. Hypnosis is a UK-based investment fund that treats songs as financial assets. This means raising capital to buy the rights to songs from the people who wrote them, then doing whatever it takes to increase the value of said songs for their owners, in this case the shareholders of Hypnosis, many of whom are some of the UK's biggest asset management firms. So is this kind of making music, making art a financial asset, is this new in any way? How is this different from the way music profits were generated in the past? Well, I mean, it's part of a, um, a much uh, longer story in the, the history of the music industry. And I, I, I'd really recommend anyone who's interested to check out the, um, the, the Penny Fractions blog, which is, um, uh, uh, you know, the author of which is, is far more informed than I am about the, the kind of history of the music industry. Um, but we we've seen a change in the last couple of decades, which uh, I think um, uh, kind of goes back to the the sort of crisis of profitability in the music industry um, around the turn of the century, um, which is often kind of presented as um, being driven 
by uh, uh, digital music pri- piracy. Um, you know, so people no longer paying for music because they were all downloading it off Napster or what have you, um, which is a, a bit of a, a misnomer, to be honest. Um, it's much more to do with a, a kind of a, a, a much more fundamental crisis in, in, in how record companies were, were making their money and the, the collapse of their old business model based around uh, uh, selling grotesquely overpriced CD albums um, and them not having a plan for how to make uh, money from uh, digital music. Um, uh, and they, they used the, uh, the sort of uh, um, kind of moral panic around uh, uh, piracy to help uh, sort of steer the direction of the, uh, the, the music economy, which, which emerged sort of after, after 2000. Um, uh, and it, it, so this, this sort of new musical economy has been characterized by the kind of consolidation of power around uh, three uh, sort of big mega corporations, uh, Universal, uh, Warner and, and Sony. Um, and in, these are sort of three kind of gargantuan uh, uh, behemoths who, who are the product of a, of a series of mergers, um, which has left them, you know, sitting on an, an incredible uh, um, uh, sort of bank of, of assets, you know, the last sort of 70 uh, uh, years of, of recorded music. Um, uh, and, you know, as we're seeing in, in, in other spheres like film, um, you know, we're reaching a point in our culture where the, the holders of this IP are, are looking at the risks, you know, the financial risks involved with trying to produce uh, new uh, 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 intellectual property versus trying to kind of monetize what they've already got. Um, and uh, making the kind of rational capitalist calculation that the, the, the latter is, is, is a smart way to go. Um, so that's the broader trend and, and hypnosis is, is really um, kind of uh, the latest sort of iteration of that. Um, the other aspect, of course, is, is, is the, the digitization of the music economy, which has um, turned all of these old songs into new revenue streams because, you know, every time a, uh, you know, whereas when you're listening to songs on CD, you know you don't you don't pay the you don't pay the rights holder again every time you play the CD. But every time a song is streamed, that's a you know that's a that's an additional uh, revenue stream going to the rights holders. Um, so that, alongside of a whole load of other kind of factors relating to the digitization of music, has, has created these conditions where um, uh, looking to kind of monetize. Um, uh, the uh, kind of old music IP is 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 incredibly lucrative. This week we present new music from Kedrine in conjunction with the exhibit An Epithet at the Co-Prosperity Sphere. That exhibit is on display until April 30th. More information is at epithet.info. This is Why Are We Up? <laughs> Yeah. I got hands, I 
champagne with my stomach up. I think I'ma need a couple tones. Big R.A. again, throw it up. Drop me when I tell you, you don't want what's in my cup. I got hands on me, you right here. You ain't got that long sleeve, you right here. complete now playing eureka cast now inspire curiosity imagine science the point being is that lying is not a biological action it is not Mm -hmm. a a physically meaningful action because it is a metaphysical action interesting it is a not simply psychological it's an action that is defined by something that is not within the realm of empirical science of mm-hmm. the na- of the of the uh, the natural sciences as it's commonly known. It right. is something that requires the approach of the metaphysical of spirit science, and that is the approach that we take at the Simon Amy Center for Honesty Diagnostics. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and getting into that very quickly as well, we right. need to discuss truth as it is defined 
in the work that is being done at the center. Okay. And that is based on the principle of the Simon Amy hierarchy of truth. Hierarchy of truth. There is a hierarchy of truth, and that uh, that informs the entire procedures with which research and technology is applied. What, what are these? What is this hierarchy, Rowan? Well, it's it's essentially. It's like a pyramid. There's four layers of mm-hmm. truth that can be accessed based on various techniques. Right. Uh, so the first one, which is is known truth, this is sort of the, the, the basic understanding of truth. Right. Known truth is things like specific, specific facts. Right. Such as what color is the shirt you're wearing? Do you like wine or, or like maybe what were you doing last week or something where did you bury the body exactly those are known truths the next layer up is an is called elemental truth mm-hmm. uh, that's deep knowledge that's uh-huh. that's truth found in the natural world things like the value of pi or, sure. the, or the value of a man's life right Th- this is the sort of truth that's understood or- and accessible by mathematicians and philosophers. Sir, perhaps, perhaps like uh, where you can, if you walk around with, say, sort of a lamp, maybe like the direction where you can go to find a good man. That would be an elemental truth, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, above that is something known as basal truth. This is mm. Protean truth or Ur-truth. Uh-huh. This is the truth of oblivion. This is knowledge only known to those who cannot know those who are dying or newly born. The essence of reality, essentially. Experience devoid experience. Mm-hmm. That is basal truth. I'm, I'm really trying here. Ron. And then above that um, is harmonic truth, oh. also known as arcane wisdom. And, and we do not have time for that today. Uh-huh. So uh, without that established, uh, what we focus on at the Center for Honesty Diagnostics is known truths, that mm-hmm. first layer. And to that end, we find hungry rats quite effective. Uh-huh. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.